One of the great privileges in ministry is to be used by the Lord to have an impact on people's lives. And a lot of times we never have the opportunity to know what that impact is. And God has privileged me in many ways, not only to be able to tell some of the men that are in this room what an impact they've had on my life, but also to to see a few people that have had some measure of impact from my ministry. And Andy and I were talking at dinner tonight. We first met about 16 years ago at a conservative theological society meeting in um, at uh, Fort Worth that was hosted by uh, Tyndale Semin- Seminary. And Andy at that time had actually begun his seminary career as a student at Chafer Seminary in Southern California. And then he moved to Dallas to complete his THM and then to go on to get his Ph.D. at Dallas Seminary. Prior to that, he had uh, gotten his uh, law degree at Whittier Law School in California and had practiced law for a short time. And so he um, has brings a couple of areas of specialty uh, to the Word. Now, tonight he's not addressing the issue, legal issues quite so much, but he has a blog that uh, he'll tell you about that I think is important uh, for everybody to pay attention to because we are facing some really significant legal and political issues in this country, and we as believers need to be knowledgeable, and we need to develop uh, relationships with our uh, congressmen and with our senators so that when uh, they hear your name, they know who you are. And as a Christian, you need to be taking a stand, letting them know uh, how they should be uh, representing us. And if we're silent, then um, that's that's our problem. That's not a good idea. We have a representative in the Texas legislature here, and he's saying, no, that's not a good idea. Not, not a good idea to keep silent. So... Uh, it's good to have him here, uh, Representative Rick Miller. He's spoken for our men's group here just this last week, giving us a rundown on what the Texas legislature just accomplished. But anyhow, uh, Andy's here, and he is addressing a uh, problem passage in Second Corinthians chapter uh, 13, 5, each night. And I noticed this on his slide. You have a picture of the book, so promo the book a little bit, that, that there is a book here. That was published. I don't know how many of you know this story, but our first speaker was going to be Dr. Michael Rydelnik. He had to cancel because he had to have back surgery. We went with a second speaker who was who's Dr. Glenn Riddle. And we really dedicated this conference to Glenn. I did not mention that earlier today, but Glenn was a stalwart of the faith. He was a warrior for grace. Uh, he, for many years now, over 20 years, he'd worked with BEE, and that's Jody Dillo's organization, and he had developed quite a ministry in China, ministering with BEE, and um, had tremendous impact. He lived in Albuquerque. I understand he had the greatest collection of Greek grammars west of the Mississippi, and he was knowledgeable in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, Nate May is speaking tomorrow. And he may say something a little more about about Glenn, but Glenn was a great warrior for grace. And after uh, Rydelnik had to step step back, uh, I called Glenn, and we talked. We talked about the importance of grace, the importance of uh, looking at exegetical issues in the grace gospel and understanding them. 
And then a week later, the Lord took him home in a motorcycle accident in Thailand. And so the Lord is guiding and directing this conference. And I thought, well, we have this book that several of us contributed articles to, all on grace. So we'll take Glenn's vision for dealing with exegetical problems in gospel passages to clarify the grace gospel. And then we would take uh, three of the men who had contributed, or actually four, because Mark Musser was one of them and his paper was this afternoon, uh, four men who would focus on these these problem passages. And Andy is taking the second of those topics this evening. But we want to remember Glenn in prayer, uh, his, excuse me, his family in prayer, uh, because they're still dealing with the loss of their hus- husband, father, and many who lost a dear friend, some here who knew him quite well. And uh, I just got a chance to meet him via Skype a week before the Lord took him home. And we just hit it off. We had a fabulous conversation that we didn't want to end. We just were focusing on the Word, and we were looking at this passage and that passage and, and just uh, bouncing ideas off of each other. And it was just tr- just a tremendous time of fellowship. And there aren't that many folks left who have that kind of love for the word and so that's really the uh, that's really the legacy that that Glenn left was a love for the word and a love for the original languages but uh, anyway uh, Andy is going to come up and talk about 2 Corinthians 13:5 and uh, Andy why don't you pray before we start and then we'll begin yeah just to have a record of your truth. Thank you for preserving it for us and help us tonight take uh, seriously our calling to rightfully divide it. And I just ask that the Holy Spirit would be present with his illuminating ministry guiding us into all truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. If uh, we could take our Bibles. And open them to Second Corinthians. That's right after First Corinthians. Second uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen and verse five. And the title of this session is Must We Examine Ourselves to See If We Are Saved? And as you're turning there, um, the blog that Uh, Dr. Dean mentioned the one I do is called thewordonpolitics.com. I don't give you term papers. I just do short blogs every week uh, just to kind of update people on what's going on. I think things are about to change big time with the Supreme Court case that's imminent, although tonight we're not talking about that. And if you come back Friday, we're going to be dealing with, I have two sessions on the Middle East meltdown, assuming it doesn't melt down between now and Friday. But uh, tonight we're taking a look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, must we examine ourselves to see if we are saved. And here's the way that verse reads, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? 
Um, I've been a pastor at Sugarland Bible Church since 2010, and uh, everybody has shocks when they go into the ministry as a pastor, and one of my shocks was dealing with the number of people that were unsure if they were really Christians or not, and that's what we call the assurance of salvation. And I didn't realize what an epidemic this was amongst God's people. But vast majorities, uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but a, la- a vast segment of God's people don't really know if they're a believer or not. And one of the verses that everybody pulls out is this one right here. We have to examine ourselves constantly to see if we are in the faith. And nine times out of ten, when somebody mentions this passage, what they're, the way they interpret it is we need to be involved in chronic spiritual self-inventory to figure out if we really are a child of God or not. And some of the camps that this viewpoint emanates from, and I'm kind of using all of these as synonyms, but you would have what I would call reform theology. Uh, I would also throw into the mix lordship salvation. And I'm also going to use the term hyper-Calvinism. And all of these views are essentially, they're teaching a lot of different things, but one of the threads that's dominant in these views is you have to be exhibiting massive amounts of fruit. Now, they never tell you how fast the fruit has to come or how much there has to be, but it's got to be there. And if it's not there in your life, as you look at your life, then maybe you were never a Christian to begin with. Let me just give you um, some quotes here. This is from Buswell's uh, Systematic Theology. He writes, But my point is that so long as a professing Christian is in a state of carnality, no pastor, no Christian friend has the slightest ground for holding that this carnal person has ever been regenerated. It is the pastor's duty to counsel such a person. You do not give evidence of being in a regenerate state. You must remember Paul's warning And you see the verse he's quoting there, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Uh, John MacArthur writes this, Doubts about one's salvation are not wrong. Scripture encourages self-examination. In 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Paul wrote, and then he quotes the verse, And then he concludes, that admonition is largely ignored and often explained away in the contemporary church. Uh, This is the uh, Geneva Study Bible. R.C. Sproul and people like that were involved with this. And this is what they say about 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul's words help clarify the doctrine of the assurance of faith. Paul asks the Corinthians to examine their own lives for evidence of salvation. Such evidence would include trust in Christ, obedience to God's word, growth in holiness, the fruit of the spirit, love for each other, positive influence on others, adherence to apostolic teaching, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within them. Now that makes you feel safe and secure, doesn't it? 
And uh, a, a commentary that I read a lot, a commentator I read a lot, Warren Wiersbe, gets into the act. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul told the Corinthians that they should examine their hearts to see if they are really born again and members of the family of God. Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Do you love the brethren? Do you practice righteousness? Have you overcome the world so that you're living a life of godly separation? These are just a few tests we can apply to our own lives to be certain that we are children of God. In one of the churches I pastored, we had a teenager who was the center of every problem in the youth group. We got a lot of kids that way, don't we? One summer, he went off to our church youth camp at one of the meetings. He got up and announced that he had been saved that week. His Christian profession up to that point in time had been counterfeit. He experienced a dramatic change in his life, and today he is serving the Lord faithfully. No doubt many of the problems at Corinth were caused by people who professed to be saved, but really were never repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Our churches are filled with such people. Paul called such people reprobate, which means counterfeit, after a discredited test. So he's building this whole paradigm also, like the other writers I've quoted, from uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Now, what happens if you haven't overcome the world? What happens if you're not loving the brethren the way you should? Well, those in this camp have a term for this. They basically believe that your faith is spurious or not authentic. So there is the faith that saves and a faith that doesn't save. Now, if you believe there's a faith that saves and a faith that doesn't save, you're going to spend your whole life wondering, do I have the right faith? Uh, here is um, Hendrickson. He writes, this is a uh, commentary on the words of Christ at the end of John 2. He says, Many trusted in his name because of the manner in which his power was displayed. They accepted him as a great prophet and perhaps even the Messiah. This, however, is not the same as saying that they surrendered their hearts to him. And then he says, Not all faith is saving faith. And the issue really is this viewpoint is not just a discussion amongst theological eggheads. This, I believe, has a tremendous uh, impetus or influence on your pastoral philosophy of ministry. What this does is it gets spiritual leaders into what I would call the fruit inspecting business, trying to figure out if so-and-so is saved, trying to figure out if their fellow pastors are saved, trying to figure out if they themselves are saved. All this kind of spiritual self-inventory goes on as people apply, they think they're applying 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. And to me, this is a personal issue in a certain way because you have a lot of people out there that are serving God out of fear. I better show up at Wednesday night prayer meeting to prove I'm one of the overcomers, to prove that I am saved. Whereas if I don't show up to Wednesday night prayer meeting, perhaps I'm not one of the those that are saved. So the motive there in going to Wednesday night prayer meeting is trying to figure out am I saved or not. I mean, is that the proper motivation for Christian service to begin with? 
See, the reason I serve the Lord today is not because I'm trying to figure out if I'm a Christian. I serve the Lord because I'm blown away by what he's done for me. And I'm totally blown away by the promises I have in him. I'm not serving him to pay him back. I'm not serving him to prove something. I'm serving him out of gratitude. And so I'm just trying to explain how this is not just some kind of pie-in-the-sky debate. This goes right to daily living as a Christian. And so what I'm trying to answer in this paper is, is the reform camp, as I've used the expression, are they using 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 correctly? And my answer to that will be a resounding no. Because what I'll try to show you is this verse is totally lifted from its context and wrenched from its context. And what are the three rules for successful real estate? Location, location, location. What are the three rules for successful Bible interpretation? Context, context, context. If you don't care about context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Um, Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. (laughs) And what you do, do quickly. So I can string verses together to promote suicide or reform theology or anything I want the Bible to mean. And of course, there's the great danger of doing eisegesis, bringing ideas to the Bible, rather than exegesis, drawing ideas naturally from the Bible. Real quick review on this. This may seem kind of a review for some folks, but there are, and it's very important to what I'm going to say tonight, three tenses of salvation. Justification, the past tense of my salvation. Sanctification, the present tense of my salvation. Glorification, the future tense of my salvation. In justification, at the point of faith in Christ, I am saved from sin's penalty. And then the Lord moves me into progressive sanctification, which, unlike justification, is not something that takes place instantaneously. It's more of a process that we are in. It involves learning, like you all are here to learn and study. It involves availing ourselves to the resources of God that are within us, discovering those resources, walking by faith, availing ourselves to them moment by moment. And hopefully what is happening is we're gradually being delivered from sin's power in daily life. And then we'll come that future point in time at the rapture or death. I hope the rapture comes first. Uh, I don't, I was thinking about the other day, I don't have a single problem in my life that the rapture won't fix. Um... (laughs) But either at the rapture or death, I am out of this body finally, and I move into glorification, and at that point, I'm delivered from sin's very presence. The reform camp basically wants you to believe that 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 applies to justification, which is the first tense of our salvation. And what I'd like to show you today is, or this evening is that 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 does not apply to justification. That's not the point of the passage. It applies to the middle tense of our salvation, 
not whether we're saved or not, but are we growing in Christ? You see, that's the test. Are we becoming more Christ-like in daily life, not whether we're Christians in the first place? Are we growing in our intimacy with Christ? Are we growing in our enjoyment of Christ? And uh, what I'd like to walk you through very briefly this evening, and I'll have to move fairly fast, are nine points uh, that cumulatively, I think, prove that 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 is not a test to determine the authenticity of someone's Christianity, but rather it's a test to determine their growth in Christ. So there's the first five points I'll make, and then there's the remaining four points that I'll make. And all of these points are contained in a book that a lot of us, as Robbie mentioned, had an opportunity to contribute to. And the title of that book is 21 Tough Questions About Grace. I think the editor, Grant Hawley, is here somewhere. Uh, is he here? He's in the restroom? <laughs> well, at least he's in the building. Second, Second Corinthians 13, verse 5. Um, so I, I contributed the chapter to the book on that particular subject. There he is. There's, there's the guy. So, Okay, very good. Just want to make sure you weren't in the rest, our unisex restrooms over there or anything. Um, and when I was asked to participate in this project, I was very happy to do it because it seems to me that the reform view on 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it's almost the only view you ever hear. And so I was happy to contribute to literature that gave people the other side of the story. So let's uh, walk through these points one by one, and I'd like to show you that 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 is a progressive sanctification test, not a justification test. All right, number one, first of the nine reasons. The Corinthians' status as children of God is assumed throughout the two Corinthian letters. In fact, look at how 1 Corinthians begins. And remember, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to the same audience, uh, very close in time to one another. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified, past tense, in Jesus Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who are who in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, if you were stuck on a desert island somewhere and you had 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 in your Bible and you just had your Bible to read, you would never come to the conclusion that this was written to unbelievers. You would never come to the conclusion that the audience was anything other than assumed to be regenerated. 2 Corinthians 1.1 starts off just the same way. It says, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Notice in the prior citation, Paul says, their Lord and ours. In other words, he's putting himself in the same position spiritually as his audience. And it's not just in these opening verses. I could give you verses that clearly show the audience was a believing audience. But if I had time, I could take you through all of those verses in 1 Corinthians. 
First Corinthians three one, uh, three five, six eleven. It's even interesting in chapter six when his audience is going into temple prostitutes. He never challenges whether his audience is saved. What he says is, don't you know that when you do that, you take the Holy Spirit in with you? So obviously, there's no doubt that his audience is believing. And when you go through the book of Second Corinthians, it says over and over again that they're regenerated and that they're saved. So the question becomes, why would Paul switch horses in midstream? Why would he wait till the very end of these two letters and all of a sudden the saved status of the audience is in doubt? We need to give you a test to determine if you're really saved. Zane Hodges, I think, makes a very good point. He says regarding 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Regrettably, these forceful words have been sadly misconstrued. They have been read by some interpreters as though they were a challenge to the Corinthians to find out whether they were really saved or not. This is unthinkable. After 12 chapters in which Paul takes their Christianity for granted, can he now be asking them to make sure that they are born again? Let the readers of this book examine Second Corinthians on their own. They will see clearly how often the apostle affirms in one way or another his conviction that his readers are genuinely Christian. Number two. The concept or the phrase proving oneself can apply to a believer whose salvation is not in doubt. Notice what 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now, the verb examine is the Greek verb Dakamazo. Uh, Sometimes it's translated test, as in the ESV. Sometimes the way the NASB translates it, like I have here, it means to examine. Uh, the King, the NKJV translates that word as prove. But there is an adjective that comes from that same root, and the adjective is dakamas, and that means approved. Now, when we study out that adjective, what we discover is that adjective can apply very easily to a believer whose salvation is not in doubt. In fact, Paul himself applied that identical adjective to Timothy. What does he tell Timothy to do? Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So when he uses approved to Timothy, it's that adjective, dokamos, coming from that same root, dokamazo, the verb that's used in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Now, the question is, is there any doubt that Timothy was a believer? I mean, why would Paul put Timothy in a position of pastoral leadership over Ephesus, a very influential church, if Paul had question marks about whether Timothy was a believer? In fact, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, my beloved son. 
I mean, there's no doubt that he was his spiritual son. There was no doubt that Timothy was a believer. So if that's true, what, why is Paul using approved related to Timothy? Why is he using dokimos related to Timothy? Well, it's not a approval to determine if he's a Christian. It's, a, it's an approval to determine is he proficient in handling the scripture. Because just because you're a, a Christian doesn't mean you handle the scripture correctly. That's why, as Dan said earlier, Chafer Seminary exists to equip those with the gift of pastor teacher to rightfully handle or divide the word of God. So quite clearly, this concept of proving yourself is not something that automatically relates to whether someone is a believer or not. It's not a test to determine the authenticity of someone's salvation, but it can relate to something an issue in someone's life that is not related to the authenticity of their salvation. Third reason why I think 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 is not a test to determine the authenticity of someone's salvation, but are they making progress in their progressive sanctification, in their fellowship with God, in their enjoyment with God? Number three, the phrase disqualification can very easily apply to an authentic believer whose salvation is not in doubt. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, and let's see what it says. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Now, that word fail there, again, is that Greek adjective adakamas in, in chapter 13 and verse 5. It's translated fail to meet the test in the ESV. It's translated disqualified in the NKJV. And this is a phrase that can easily apply to a believer. How do I know that? Because Paul applied it to himself. He applied it to himself in the same Corinthian corpus of material in 1 Corinthians. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9:27? But I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Did Paul have some kind of lingering doubts? whether he himself was a Christian? I don't think so at all. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, it says this, Paul says, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. doesn't sound like he had any lingering doubts about his salvation at all. Didn't Paul say absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. doesn't sound like he had a lot of question marks about his salvation. He said in Philippians 1, 21 through 23, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? To die is gain. Again, no lingering doubts whatsoever about his conversion. And yet Paul is afraid of disqualification. I buffet my body, I make it my save, lest I have preached to others, I might be disqualified for the prize. How sad it is to interpret the prize as salvation. If the prize is salvation, then Paul contradicted everything he ever taught to anybody. 
Because in Romans 3 and verse 28, he's very clear that we are saved by faith apart from works. So what then is Paul, if he's not afraid of losing his salvation, what is he afraid of losing? Well, what he's afraid of losing is rewards. By the way, Joseph Dillo has a great quote here. He says, if adakamos or disqualified here means that the apostle was not certain that he would go to heaven, one wonders how any Christian in the history of the church could ever know for certain that God was his father. Paul's not afraid of being disqualified for heaven. What he's afraid of being disqualified for is a reward. And at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, five rewards potentially will be given or not given to people. You have number one, and this is what Paul is afraid of losing, 1 Corinthians 9, the incorruptible crown for gaining mastery over the old man. Now, the old man is not your dad. The old man is your sin nature. Then you have the 1 Thessalonians 2, crown of rejoicing for the soul winner. Then you have James 1, Revelation 2, the crown of life for enduring trials. Anybody a candidate for that one? 1 Peter 5, the crown of glory for faithfully shepherding God's people. And then there's this crown. I I know I'm going to get this one. It's the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, for longing for his appearing. Because I, quite frankly, can't wait to get out of here a lot of times. So just longing for his appearing qualifies you for a crown. Paul is fearful of being disqualified for that first crown. And when you look at the top of the screen there, I've got several verses that indicate that this doctrine of rewards is something that the Christian should be concerned about. Rewards at the Bema Seat Judgment are things that we can forfeit. All those rewarded are Christians, but not all Christians are equally rewarded. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15 says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though through fire. 2 John 8, Watch yourself that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but you may receive a full reward. Revelation 3, 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now people hear this and they say, Crowns, schmounds. As long as I'm in heaven, I don't really care if I have a crown or not. I don't really care how I fare at the beam of seat judgment of Christ. Well, if that's your attitude about it, I would encourage you to read Revelation 4, verse 10. It says, The 24 elders, I take that as the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and will cast their crowns before the throne. These crowns that we gain for decisions that we make in this life relate to capacities that we will have to glorify Jesus throughout the ages. Not to pay him back, not to earn salvation, not to contribute to salvation, but rather as an act of gratitude and worship for what he has done. Some have a greater capacity to glorify Christ than others. And so very clearly what we see here is this concept of disqualification, same word used in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, is a concept that is applicable to a Christian whose salvation is not in doubt. Number four, the expression in the faith 
can refer to the believer's experience in Jesus rather than his position in Jesus. Again, let's look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Now people look at that and say, well, in the faith means you're a Christian. If you're not in the faith, you're not a Christian. So we need to examine ourselves to figure out if we're really Christians in the first place. But the reality of the situation is the identical expression, the prepositional phrase, in the faith with the preposition the definite article and the same noun is used only three other times by Paul in reference to the believer's experience rather than the believer's position. One such example is in 1 Corinthians 16 and verses 13 through 15. Paul says, again, the same corpus or body of material, the Corinthian letters, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all uh, that you do be done in love. Now it's very clear he's talking to Christians because he says, now I urge you what? Brethren. So this is an exhortation for the brethren to stand firm in the faith. You'll find this in Colossians 1.27, Titus 2.13. There are a number of other examples I give in the paper of the nearly identical expression being used to refer to the experience of the believer rather than the position of the believer. The, The reality of the situation is some Christians are standing firm in the faith. Others are not. The ones that are not are described in Ephesians 4 verse 14. They're being tossed to and fro blown about by every wind of doctrine. So you can see that this expression, the prepositional phrase, in the faith, clearly is an expression applicable to a believer. Number five, the expression Christ in you. The expression Christ in you, Jesus Christ in you, can very easily relate to the progressive sanctification of the believer rather than his justification. And notice what 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Now the reform camp looks at that and they think it's an open shut case. Either Christ is in you because you're a believer Or if you fail the test, Christ is not in you because you are not a believer. But you see, this expression in Paul's writings, Christ in you, many times refers to the maturity of the believer, the growth of the believer, the progressive sanctification of the believer. Let me give you an example of this from the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, verse 19. This actually was Paul's very first epistle of the 13 letters he wrote. He writes here, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now, when he uses this expression, my little children, there's very little doubt that he is speaking here of believers. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is written to a believing audience. 
Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you being perfected in the flesh? How can you begin by the Spirit unless you, in fact, are a believer? Galatians 4.6 says, Because you are sons, God sent, has sent forth the Spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's very clear through the expression, children. The Spirit of God is inside of us that he is speaking to those that are Christians. But what does he say to these Christians that he calls his own children? I am in labor for you again. Why? Because Christ has not been formed where? In you yet. See, in the natural world, we have uh, obstetricians, which help the birthing process. Then we have pediatricians, which help the child grow. Those are two totally different disciplines. Uh, typically, your obstetrician and pediatrician for a child are two totally different individuals. So that's how it works in the spiritual life. We have obstetricians, evangelists, which lead people to Christ. And then you have pediatricians. Uh, I would put most of the people in this room in that category as with gifts of pastor teacher to help this newborn child develop and grow the right way. Well, So what is Paul concerned about? He's not concerned about whether these people are believers. The pediatrician's done his, his job. The obstetrician has done his job. He's worried about the work of spirit, being a spiritual pediatrician. And because these people were saved but hadn't grown the way they were supposed to, he says Christ has not been formed in you yet. So very clearly this expression, Christ in you can apply to a Christian whose the authenticity of their salvation is not in doubt at all. In fact, did not Jesus teach the same truth in the upper room? John 15 and verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now the reform camp looks at that and says the branch in the vine is the believer. The branch out of the vine is the unbeliever. I would challenge people that have that point of view to look at the context. Context is king. Who in the world is Jesus talking to when he made this statement? He is speaking to the 11 who are already saved. In John 13, verses 10 and 11, it says this, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. When Jesus made that statement in John 13, you've got 12 people there in the upper room. Eleven are believers, they're clean, and one is unclean, Judas, who was never saved. Judas takes an early exit. He leaves the upper room in John 13, verses 29 and 30. So by the time John 15 rolls around, Jesus is speaking to 11 saved people. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
So what is Jesus talking about to these 11 saved people? He's not drawing a distinction between being an unbeliever and a believer. That wouldn't fit his audience at all. He's talking about a believer being in fellowship with Christ and a believer being out of fellowship with Christ. Those in fellowship with him are those branches in the vine. Those out of fellowship with him are those branches outside the vine. By the way, this word abide which is the Greek word, uh, verb, I believe, meno, is used in John 8.31. And very clearly there, meno applies to a believer. It says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue, now continue there is meno, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So the command to abide, trans. Uh, Continue translated meno, abide, same word used in John 15, verse 4, abide in me, is very clearly aimed there at the believer. So Jesus was saying to the, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word. You see, it's not automatic. Some continue in his word, some do not. So hopefully what I've shown is that this concept of Jesus in you can very easily relate to someone's progressive sanctification someone's intimacy with Christ, someone's enjoyment with Christ, someone's growth in Christ. We need not automatically jump to the conclusion that he's drawing a distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. Number six, the reform view destroys the passage's symmetry. When you look at this verse here, there's a context and there's symmetry taking place in 2 Corinthians 13. Look up, if you will, at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Notice what it says. And what is going on here is the Corinthians had challenged Paul, a rebellious group, to say the least. He says, since you are seeking for proof, now the word for proof there is dokume, since you are seeking for proof, that Jesus Christ was in me. And then down in verse 6 and 7, he says, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we're back to Adakamas. He's applied that to himself. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Now you put this together and the Corinthians, the rebellious group that they were, threw a challenge at Paul. They use proof, dokume, verse 3. They use, is Jesus Christ in you, verse 3. And maybe, Paul, you failed the test. And they apply, as Paul is explaining this, a dokumos to Paul two times there, uh, in verses 6 and 7. Now, Paul could be somewhat sarcastic, couldn't he? I'm not promoting sarcasm. I guess if you're an apostle, you can be a little sarcastic from time to time. But Paul was the same guy that said this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 to the Corinthians. You are already filled. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. That's pure sarcasm. So what is Paul in his sarcasm done? 
he has taken the same challenge that they leveled at him, and he's turned right around and applied it to them. In verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not know this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Paul says, you want to throw those words at me? I'm going to throw them right back at you. He uses proof, dokamazo, same root as dokame, verse 3. Jesus Christ was in them. They said, is Jesus in you? He says, well, maybe it's not in you, by way of response. And then they had thrown a dokamas at him. Maybe he had failed the test. Maybe he had become disqualified. Paul turns right around and says, maybe you failed the test. Same word, adakamos. Maybe you have become disqualified. So do you see the symmetry here? So all we have to do really to figure out what is Paul saying in verse 5 is to try to figure out what have they challenged him with. What they have challenged him with is evidence of what he is challenging them with. So what were the Corinthians' problem? They never questioned whether Paul was a believer. They never questioned whether he was saved. They weren't questioning whether he was regenerated. What they were questioning him is his apostolic authority and his maturity to correct them. That's what they didn't like. So Paul, in the symmetry of the passage, turns right around and doesn't challenge them whether they're saved or not. He challenges them on their maturity, their development, their progressive sanctification. And you see, whenever this verse is quoted by the Reformed camp, they totally ignore the symmetry. They just give you the verse without the surrounding context. So the Reformed view destroys the symmetry of the passage. Number seven. Seventh reason why 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 is not talking about the authenticity of someone's salvation, but rather their growth, enjoyment, and intimacy with Christ or the middle tense of their salvation. Number seven, only believers experience discipline. Now, notice 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He says, if you fail the test... You're going to go through discipline, and I will impose it myself. And I think that's what he's referring to back in verse 1. He says, this is the third time I am coming to you. He says, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two to three witnesses. Now, there is some discussion on this, but... I believe that when he talks about the testimony of two to three witnesses, he's talking about the steps of church discipline. And you know the passage well, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. In other words, if they fail the test, he is threatening them with discipline. Now, sometimes discipline can be imposed from the church itself. That's what they did in first, that's what he exhorted them to do in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, related to the man in incest. He needs to be disciplined. And sometimes discipline can be imposed by God. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, for this reason, because they were drunk and disorderly at the Lord's table, for this reason, some of you are sick and many of you have fallen asleep. 
So this subject of discipline is dominant in these two letters, and I believe that's what Paul is threatening these people with. Now, if that is true, you only discipline a believer. You don't discipline an unbeliever. Hebrews 12, verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Jesus to the wayward church at Laodicea says in Revelation 3, verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I have never disciplined the neighbor's kids. I've thought about it many times. But I've never done that. Why? Because they don't belong to me. I have no authority over them. See, you discipline your own children. And I really doubt that the steps of church discipline would be articulated there in verse 1 if Paul had some kind of lingering doubt whether these folks were saved or unsaved. It just doesn't fit at all. Number 8, Scripture nowhere tells believers to test the authenticity of their faith. I can't find a single verse in the entire Bible where God says, all right, you need to look at, you need to do some self inventory. You need to look at yourself to see if you have enough fruit to prove you're a Christian. There is no verse that teaches such a doctrine. Now, the verse everybody retreats to, and you're probably already thinking about it, is Matthew 7, verses 16 through 23. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every a good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons and your name perform miracles. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there it is. We're to, we're to be fruit inspectors. Well, context is king, isn't it? Verse 15 says, beware of what? False prophets. Matthew 7 and the passage I just read is not even aimed at somebody who professes the name of Christ where their salvation is in doubt. That's not in the context of Matthew 7 at all. What Matthew 7 is talking about are false teachers. To read into Matthew 7 this idea of some have faith that's real, some have spurious faith, is to read a totally alien and foreign idea into that paragraph. We are called to test the spirits. 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. In fact, the word test there is dokamadzo, the same word translated examine in our passage. Uh, Revelation 2.2, Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false there. It's uh, pirazzo, I believe which is also a word used in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. So we're called to test the spirits. 
test false teaching, see if it's true or not, but where are we ever told to test ourselves to ascertain the authenticity of our Christianity? Joseph Dillow writes this, Nowhere in the Bible is a Christian asked to examine either his faith or his life to find out if he is a Christian. He is only told, and this is critical here, to look outside himself. I don't want to look at myself. What a depressing subject. I want to look at Jesus. To look outside himself to Christ alone for his assurance that he is a Christian. The Christian is, however, often told to examine his walk of faith and life to see if he is walking in fellowship and in conformity to the plans of God. So if you throw into verse 5 this idea that you've got to look at yourself to figure out you're a Christian, that would be a command that's found one time in the whole Bible and nowhere else, which seems a little bit odd. And then the ninth reason why I think 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 is talking about a test to ascertain our growth in Christ, our enjoyment of Christ, our intimacy with Christ, rather than a test to determine the authenticity of our salvation. The ninth reason, and to me this is probably the most important, and this is what I'm facing and you're facing in pastoral ministries constantly, Number nine, the reformed view destroys the assurance of salvation. If we are to sit and examine ourselves perpetually as the reform camp teaches to ascertain whether we are saved or not, then there is no assurance of salvation. You know, people come to me and they say, I don't think I'm a Christian. I say, well, why don't you think you're a Christian? Well, I haven't been reading my Bible enough. I haven't been praying enough. I haven't been fellowshipping as much as I should. I have been involved in too much sin. I haven't done this ministry. And finally I interrupt him and I say, do you realize how many times you just used the personal pronoun I? I, 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 I. Well, of course you don't know you're saved. If you're looking at yourself all day, What you ought to be looking at is Christ and his promises. A lot of people get mad at me because I won't jump on the John Piper bandwagon. There's a lot of reasons I don't, but look, look at this statement that he makes. No Christian can be sure that he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord, to deny ourselves so that we might make it. Does that not sound like works to you? There's, there's no assurance of salvation in that statement whatsoever. Uh, Bob Wilkin writes this. During the first message presented at Ligonier's conference in Orlando last June, Dr. R.C. Sproul indicated that Dr. James Boyce, a scheduled speaker at the conference, was dying in the faith that very night. Then at the end of the message, he asked all 5,000 of us present to pray that Jim, James Boyce, dies in the faith. This struck me as sad. Here was a great pastor, theologian, teacher, and author, yet Sproul was not sure that he was regenerate. In reform thought, if a person fails to die in the faith, he proved that he was never saved in the first place. 
I was reminded of R.T. Kendall's remark that nearly to a man, the Puritan divines died doubting whether they were saved and fearing they were going into hell. Dr. Boyce died that very night, June 15th. Here's this great pastor, great theologian, but you know, we're really not sure if this guy is saved or not. No assurance of salvation in this system uh, whatsoever. And that's where your flock is at. They don't know if they're saved either. you got to figure out which John you want to believe here. You want to believe John Piper or do you want to believe John in his gospel who recorded the words of Christ? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Has is a present tense verb. You have eternal life at the point of faith. No discussion about it. Has passed out of is in the perfect tense, a one-time action in the past with ongoing results in the present. Notice also the expression eternal life. How long does eternal life last for? (laughs) just doesn't seem like it's something you can lose. Don't look at yourself. Look at God. Look at his promises. Because he has made you promises and he cannot lie. You know, there's some things God can't do. He cannot lie. And he is has the power as deity to fulfill his promises. That's where we need to be looking. So many people approach this subject of the assurance of salvation like the weather report. 70% chance of rain today. Did, did pretty well there, but maybe it'll rain, maybe it won't. Maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. That's, that's, uh, those ideas, I mean, the more you get into the scripture, they're just foreign, completely foreign to the biblical text. You say, man, you're teaching some weird doctrines up there. If you go back a couple of generations, what I'm saying was mainstream. Now it's almost a minority opinion. But here's Article 11 of the Dallas Theological Seminary doctrinal statement. Dallas Seminary, of course, was founded in the 1920s. And it says this, We believe it is the privilege, not of some, but of all, by the Spirit, through faith, who are born again in Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures, to be assured of their salvation. When? from the very day they take him to be their savior. And that this assurance is not founded upon some fancy discovery of their own worthiness or fitness, but wholly upon the testimony of God in his what? Written word. Uh, There's several people I know in here that are pilots. Any pilot worth his or her salt will say, the thing you keep your eye on is the compass. You never take your eye off the compass. The compass will always tell you the truth. You can feel certain things. Pilots will even tell you that sometimes they feel like they're flying upside down and their impulses is to correct the situation, but you look at the compass, not your feelings. If you take your eyes off the compass and start navigating things by your feelings, you're in for a crash landing. And so many of us are looking at these subjective qualities in ourselves. Do we have enough love? Have we done this? Have we done that? 
when we ought to be looking at the promises of God who cannot lie. So in conclusion, I believe 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 is not a test to determine the authenticity of our faith, but rather it is a test to determine our growth in Christ. Why the Corinthians' believing status is assumed throughout the letter. Why? Because the expressions proving oneself, disqualification, and the prepositional phrase in the faith refer to the experience of the Christian, not his position. Furthermore, Christ in you relates to our progressive sanctification. Beyond that, the reform view destroys the symmetry of the passage. Beyond that, only a believer experiences divine discipline. Beyond that, Scripture nowhere tells believers to test the authenticity of their faith. And finally, the reform view at the end of the day ultimately destroys the or damages the assurance of salvation, something God wants us to have. But, Pastor, aren't you worried that if you teach eternal security and the assurance of salvation, people are going to slack off? I mean... Isn't hanging hell over their heads every Sunday as a possibility? Isn't that a powerful motivator? Yeah, it is a powerful motivator. But let me give you an even more powerful motivator. A more powerful motivator is understanding who you are in Christ. And as a worshipful response, we serve the Lord. I think people that serve God out of that motive, rather than out of fear, at the end of the day, make far greater Servants. Let me just close with this illustration. The Golden Gate Bridge in Northern California, as that was being constructed, given its height, people would, the builders would fall off as they were building and they would hit the water. You hit that water at that height, it's like hitting concrete, and they would die immediately. And so because the builders were afraid of falling, it was damaging, obviously, their productivity as workers. So someone has a bright idea. Why don't we put a net underneath these workers? So even if they fall, they won't die. The net will catch them. And they began to do studies regarding what happened to the productivity of those workers. The productivity of those workers did not deteriorate. The productivity of those workers was enhanced greatly. And one of the greatest scams of the devil that he wants to introduce into your mind, he wants to divide your mind on this subject, and he wants you to invest all of this energy into thinking about, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian? And the more you're focused on that, the less you're focused on what God really wants you to do, whatever your ministry is. And so that's why I don't think this is just an egghead discussion. I mean, I think this is a real-world uh pastoral ministries Christian living discussion. Anyway, I'm done talking, so we'll turn it over to Dr. Dean. What's the name of your blog? It's the the word on politics, all one word dot com. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Woods. Okay, um, just a little note while you were talking about the Boyce illustration. In 19, when was it, Tommy? 87? When John MacArthur published The Gospel According to Jesus? 88. And uh, a very young, brash, 
couple of pastors sat down at a book signing by John MacArthur at the Living Vine Christian Bookstore in Irving, Texas. I mean, um, Tommy and I were just right there. We had to have a sneeze shield up because MacArthur was like right in front of us. And I asked him, I said, well, on the basis of what you said in your book, are you sure you're going to go to heaven if you were to die right now? And he said, 90, 97% sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what Andy is saying is that that's where the lordship position takes you. You can have no assurance of salvation at all because your assurance is ultimately on self-evaluation and not on the objective promise of God to save those who have faith alone in Christ alone. Quickly, anybody have any questions on this side over here? They're, they're not sure if they're saved over there. You know, when nobody asks a question, it's either because you answered all their questions they go or home. you obfuscated everything so much they don't know what to ask. Yeah, so, uh, Dan, anybody over there? Mike. Well, that was very good, uh, Andy. I appreciate that. About two years ago, I was coming home from Bible class, and I heard John MacArthur uh, was asked a question on KCB radio, and he had just talked about how hard it is to uh, be saved, and he was condemning what he called easy believism. And uh, uh, the guy on the radio asked him, he says, well, what do you, what do, you do with... Um, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he said, what is in all that, what is in that word believe? What is all that exists in that? And so that's where he was going. <clears throat> the reason I said that is because what would you say to someone who would allege that you can't know if you believed the gospel or not? Well, you can't you, know whether you believe it or not. I mean, if you can't know... Why did God tell us a hundred times in the Gospel of John to do it? It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, to me, that reeks more of postmodern thinking that you can't know. I mean, it just it, it's to me outside the character of God to be commanded 99 to 100 times to do something. What, 160 times in the New Testament, some, somewhere like that, uh, pastuo, to believe. If you can't know, you've done it. I mean, I think when when I've looked up pastuo in uh, like vines, it means confidence, reliance, dependence, trust. I, I know that I'm, I, I can do those things in daily life. When you all get on a plane or drive home, fly home, you're going to do it. So it's it's just part of daily experience. That's how simple God has made salvation. So I, I just don't buy this idea you can't know you've done it or not. You either get on the plane because you trust the pilot or you don't. Uh, Some people today don't know if they're a man or a woman. <laughs> so, white or black. Or Andy, Andy, first Mexican, John, first John 5.13. First John 5.13. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. There we go. There it is. The Bible's not very postmodern, I guess. Slightly off the subject, but you did touch on it. Is there a good read out there on uh, the relationship between the crowns and the promises to the overcomers? 
Well, on books like that, I, I, I really like uh, Paul Benware's book. It's on rewards. I forgot the name of it. Believer's Payday. Um, John Whitcomb uh, has an excellent, excellent book, and it doesn't do some of the weird stuff done in GES today, which we won't get into here, but it's a sound book. The Whitcomb book is very good also. Uh, I forgot the title of the Whitcomb book. Do you know the title of that book? Uh, the Judgment Seat of Christ, something to that something extent. Like that. John yeah. Whitcomb, who's been a speaker here at this conference. Yeah. Okay, we need to uh, wrap up. Time's up. All right. Sorry. Um, tomorrow morning we reconvene again. Uh, the first morning session starts promptly at 8.30, and that will be Dr. Bruce Baker again. I encourage you again, uh, pick up his book. He's got some back in the back. Uh, because he had that unavoidable uh, doctor's appointment on Friday, he's going to be the bookends tomorrow during the day. He'll be the first session in the morning. And then he will be the last session in the afternoon. That was a slot that uh, Dr. Ice was going to cover. And uh, Dr. Ice is now going to be the first one on Friday morning dealing with the question of whether the Bible indicates it, whether or not there will be a, a Muslim antichrist or could the antichrist possibly be Muslim. So that will be it tomorrow for the, for, for the beginning and the end, uh, Dr. Baker. And then we have a really important session uh, updating people, talking about a lot of things. Sometimes at conferences when you say we're going to update you on the ministry, we're going to do that, people go, that's a good extended snack time. This is an important session for Chafer Seminary for the future to uh, understand who we are, what we're doing. The board's been working a lot this last year uh, in terms of orienting our mission so and thinking about the future. So that will be the second session. Then Nate Pertzer is one of our graduates, one of the uh, – uh, top students that Glenn produced uh, out of uh, in, in in Greek, and he teaches now as a missionary uh, down in Columbia, and he'll be talking about uh, the importance of Greek language in studies. And I think that one of my little hobby horses is that in the founding of this country in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a sense of excellence and qualification of pastors. They went to seminary. They were trained well. They could sight-read their Greek and their Hebrew and, in many cases, a Latin text. They carried their Latin or their Greek text, New Testament with them in the saddlebag as they went on their uh, itinerant rounds. Sometimes today we think that somebody who has a theological grasp of the Bible is therefore qualified to be in the pulpit. We have dumbed down the qualifications. We need to elevate them. Seminary it should not be an option. It should be a requirement because once you get the tools, then when you graduate, you can go into ministry and not spend most of your time in ministry trying to acquire the tools. And those of you who are here as pastors who didn't have the opportunity to go to seminary know how much time you've spent in ministry trying to get the tools. And everybody's done that to some degree, and it, it's a distraction from really being able to study the Word. So that's why it's important that we have uh, we pursue excellence in the ministry and qualifications for pastors. I look forward to seeing every... yes. Bryce? Right. And there will be a Lagos demo. Uh, Anthony's right there. Okay. He'll be here giving a demo at 8 o'clock. Be sure to be here uh, at that time, and we will see all of you in the morning. Get a good night's sleep. Let's close in prayer. Wait a minute.
Oh, the gate. That's right. They, they've locked up most of the exit gates except for the one out on this side. Okay, that would be the south east side. Okay, there's one gate open that you can leave by. It's biblical. There's one way. <laughs> Only one. And the way is narrow. Broad is the path to destruction. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had this evening to understand your word more clearly. Thank you for the work of men like Andy uh, Woods and many others who are here at this conference, their faithful diligence in your word. Pray that you would challenge us with the fact that we are living today in light of eternity and that there is an important future payday and an important future judgment that is not just about getting something for us, but is related to our capacity to serve and honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ on into eternity. And it's not about us. It's about serving him. And that should drive us every minute of every day. We thank you for this. Pray we'll get a good night's sleep. We'll have safe drives home. And we'll reunite in the morning. In Christ's name, amen.